Thanks for checking out the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. A criminal investigation into the Ford government's Greenbelt land swap is underway. Analyzing Hamilton's nighttime economy, a deal at GM, the latest in the Middle East, small businesses are optimistic, and what's happening with the gas tax? The GMH podcast begins now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. Within the provincial parliament is this RCMP criminal investigation into how the Ford government has handled this whole green belts thing. You remember, he wasn't going to touch the green belts, then he touched the green belts, and then they goofed on touching the green belts, and now, well, here we are. Sabrina and Angie is the founder of the Queen's Park Observer. You can check it out at qpobserver.substack.com. And Sabrina joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Ms. Nanji, good morning. How are you? Good morning, Rick. Thanks for having me. Hey, before we get to the Greenbelt probe, your thoughts on Sarah Gemma. Is she going to be an NDP MPP or is she going to get booted? Well, certainly the countdown is on. Uh, as you mentioned, Marit Stiles, the NDP leader, has said, you know, Sarah Jamma's got to retract this statement. But, you know, the day after, it's it's still up. And it seems to be a bit of a standoff right now. But certainly, you know, Jewish advocacy groups, uh, opposition critics, even the premier's office is saying that Jamma's got to go uh, over these remarks. And it's not the first time that she's landed in hot water for similar comments. Um, I think that, you know, the quicker the NDP deals with this, the better uh, not to have it drag out at a time when, you know, we're also dealing with an RCMP investigation into the Ford government's Greenbelt land swap. So certainly that's where the opposition critics want the heat to be is on the premier. Regarding this RCMP criminal probe, how do you see it playing out? Well, it's still early days yet, but it's a very big deal at Queen's Park and and for the Ford government right now. I mean, they've been dealing with blow after blow this summer of revelations about this flawed process that favored certain developers. And now the RCMP, which has been sniffing around, uh, you know, they took over that review from the OPP. They've now launched a a full-on formal investigation, which could, I mean, it's a big if at this point, lead to possible criminal charges here. Um, and, you know, we've seen the, the hit the Ford government has already been taking on this. They've made this stunning yet inevitable reversal on the land swap uh, that, that might not be enough to really save them from, you know, their plummeting popularity. And so I think, you know, how this investigation plays out is, is going to be something that, it, it, you know, the Ford government is going to be staking its re-election on. Now, Ford has said that he's confident nothing criminal took place. If, and we're talking in hypotheticals, if the RCMP investigation says, yes, something illegal occurred, would that necessarily force a snap election? I guess it would depend on who, who the finger was being pointed at. Yeah, and we don't really have the specifics yet. I mean, obviously, the premier is not the only one who's being investigated. The RCB hasn't even really, you know, named him. They're they're keeping a very high level, which is, you know, just kind of typical process. But there are some hints and, you know, breadcrumbs, if you want to call it that, that the integrity commissioner and auditor general's reports have sort of laid out for, for us in the public. You know, there was discussion of uh, deleting emails. And we know from the liberal era gas plants scandal that, you know, wiping of government information and hard drives is something that a you know, political liberal staffer had actually done jail time for. And so while, you know, obviously the gas plants issue is different from the Greenbelt land swap, but this is something that Ontarians will, you know, maybe equate and, and draw parallels to because we, we know these things are, you know, against the law. And so, 
the auditor general, Bonnie Lissick at the time had said that she reached out to the, the police to kind of raise some flags for them. And now, I, I mean, you know, obviously the RCMP can subpoena folks. Uh, they have a lot more powers and a lot more sway to, to dig into these matters than uh, our watchdogs at Queens Park. And so I guess, you know, time will tell what they unearth. Uh, these things can take months and years. And certainly, you know, if there are criminal charges, potentially, I, I know the, the PCs definitely don't want this to come around June 2026, which is when they'll be up for re-election. As long as this investigation goes, I mean, it is, uh, you know, a golden balloon for the opposition parties to continue to point to this investigation while other news stories in the provincial legislature cycle through the news cycle. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, either way, opposition is having a field day on this. Uh, you know, we had Green leader Mike Schreiner. He was first set of the gate saying that, you know, he's really happy the RCMP has decided to investigate what he calls a corrupt process. Um, and so while the premier likes to say that, you know, he's confident nothing criminal went on, that he's going to participate fully in this investigation, I think, you know, either way, it's good for the public because there are still so many unanswered questions on, you know, what went down over this decision, um, you know, we'll have to see if reversing it is going to be good enough uh, for whatever this investigation turns up. Very interesting times indeed at Queen's Park. Sabrina, thanks for sharing some insight with us. Thanks for having me. Sabrina Nanji, founder of the Queen's Park Observer. Check it out online, qpobserver.substack.com. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Really interesting conversation yesterday with the Hamilton Chamber of Commerce held a summit yesterday to talk about Hamilton's nighttime economy. What was highlighted and what are local businesses preparing to do? Greg Dunnett is the president of the Hamilton Chamber of Commerce and joins us on GMH. Greg, good morning. How are you? I'm doing great, Rick. How are you doing this wonderful morning? I'm good. Do you, do you want to describe the nighttime economy? Is it more than just, you know, the downtown arena and, and theaters and bars and nightclubs and restaurants, hotels? Is there is there more to it? Yeah, I, I think, uh, you know, almost a good place to start, and I'm just going to uh, parrot what uh, Shane Shapiro, who was our keynote speaker yesterday, said, is that, you know, so much of our uh, original, the way our cities were built were for a daytime economy, and that is going down to, the steel mills are, are going into the office building and then at five, six o'clock kind of shut down the economy and, and maybe there's some activity in the neighborhood or there's, you know, those bar scenes that you just spoke of. But ultimately what's become an opportunity and, and even more so coming out of, of the pandemic is this opportunity to kind of reimagine your city and to create a secondary economy and making that nighttime economy a true component of how your city uh, works, lives, and plays. So when you think about going down to Augusta Street or Hess Village or, or King William or Jane Street or wherever you want to go in the city, um, that, is there a transportation? Can you get there via alternate modes of transportation? Uh, do you feel safe in that neighborhood? And making sure that there's actually policy and planning in place to build a nighttime economy that is supported by not only the businesses, but by the community as a whole, and what are the ways that we can make it more safe, more inclusive, and really add an, an additional aspect to what living in this community is like, because we're learning more and more that you know the, the talent that businesses need to survive are looking for a city that is livable and enjoyable to be in, both during the day, but also in the evening. 
We have a number of massive and major construction projects uh, that are on the horizon. Probably first and foremost, uh, the rejuvenation, if I can call it that, of First Ontario Centre. We know that the old Hamilton City Centre is going to be coming on down, and that's going to be rebuilt and something new and exciting. LRT is... Uh, you know, our road is going to be ripped up basically from one end to the other. There there are some challenges ahead. Yeah, and I think so. This was actually kind of a, a secondary event. We did bring our business community together in the summer and said, what what do you what do you need? How can we support you? Uh, I've just come up on a year on the in the role here. So it was listening to them and you know there were there were the there were some making sure that our downtown feels safe to not only the residents but everybody in the downtown feels safe, including tourists. Um, but part of it was, was how can we support you going through the transition? We know at the end of the transformation, uh, when all of those projects you just spoke to are completed, it's going to be a completely different downtown than we've experienced before. It, it is really going to transform into with a much stronger residential population with the density that's coming uh, you know, Tom. We had Tom Pistorian from OVG yesterday. He was talking about how the those major concerts that are coming that will come in and through the renovations are going to really transform what an evening looks like because you're going to have 17,000 people coming into the downtown and not just from Hamilton but from all the various communities uh, in and around us. And, and those major concerts do draw in, as we're seeing. I think Taylor Swift and uh, Beyonce are the two kind of easy ones to point to right now. So this was a secondary component of how can we help support the business community and move through this transition because we do know that the arts and culture and the culinary scene are really the ones that started that that uh, renaissance, for lack of a better term, of our downtown. So this was, okay, we know downtown needs supports. What can we do in the short term? And Tourism Hamilton was a partner on this event because they see the importance of it too, bringing in people to the downtown and supporting those key businesses as we go through this transition. Talking about the future of Hamilton's nighttime economy with Greg Dunnett, president of the Hamilton Chamber of Commerce. They held a summit yesterday to discuss what it could potentially look like and the opportunities that will be born out of these renovation projects and the construction of the LRT. Uh, you mentioned um, uh, Hess Village, um, you know, Locke. Uh, you know, exciting, really upbeat, um, amazing vibe kind of uh, areas of our city. Is, is the goal to kind of replicate that in some form, some shape or form in in other places in the downtown? I think it's, you know, a big part of it. And really yesterday was about connecting and, and bringing, you know, new ideas and thoughts to the forefront. But, you know, I think a great way to look at what, some of the opportunities that have started to be implemented in our in our city are. I mean, again, I think if you walk in the downtown core now, you see all these beautiful murals that have been put up by artists. I think that's just a really neat way to add to the culture of our community. But even, you know, the street closures that have been happening. And so you can get out on the street, walk safely. Um, you know, through the pandemic, there was the the restaurant scenes that we're able to build at the, the patios out onto the streets. And again, I think we all kind of were like, Hey, this is like, this is a fascinating thing when you're just walking out and there's an energy in the street that you normally wouldn't feel. I think some, you know, some communities have gone so far as to license those streets. So now you can walk down the street, have a drink, enjoy the downtown. So an arts crawl, a, a super crawl, uh, you know, depending on the size and scope of the event can have this, additional feel and i think when we all get that sense of community 
Uh, we're all, we all want to stay longer. We enjoy ourselves more and we can, um, you know, we hang out there. It was interesting though. One of the things, uh, that, uh, Matthew Grandon and he came, he was in from Montreal and he was talking about their nighttime iconic. If he even spoke to the fact that if you keep the bars open later, sometimes what safer because now people aren't having that uh, that last drink or several drinks right before the bar closes and then everybody kind of funnels out right at the exact same moment and they're fighting uh, to, to, to steal his words they're fighting for the same cab slice of pizza and girl and so that can lead to issues versus um, in that situation where you kind of let the people disperse as they best see fit it creates a, a more there's more uh, connection in terms of there's not the the competing needs. And so it it goes longer and everybody benefits from it. So sometimes you think you're doing better by cutting it off at a certain time, but Montreal has seen actual positive returns by extending out those licensing opportunities to later on because it it reduces some of those uh, crunch periods that can cause some of the bad things that are historically tied to Mm -hmm. the nighttime. Greg, we'll have to leave it there. Appreciate your time this morning. Thanks for joining us this morning on GMH. Thanks, Rick. Appreciate you. Have a good day. You too. Greg Dunnett, president of the Hamilton Chamber of Commerce. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. General Motors agreeing to a tentative deal with Unifor that mirrors the one that Union reached with Ford just last month. Union President Lana Payne says the auto company accepted it after a 12-hour strike. Unifor is very happy to announce that we have reached a tentative agreement with General Motors following a 12-hour strike. And we have met a pattern agreement that we established with Ford Motor Company a couple of weeks ago, which really is critical to building and having worker power. So there were 4,300 auto workers in this province on strike for yeah, basically half half a day, 12 hours, including those at the St. Catharines Propulsion Plant and others in Oshawa and Woodstock, but they're back at it. So how does this impact the union's talks with Stellantis, which is the parent company of Chrysler? And what is happening with the auto workers in the U.S.? Marvin Ryder is a professor with the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University, and he joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Marvin, good morning. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. Glad to be here. 12 hours. That's pretty fast. (laughs) Yes, I I hope everyone's feeling a little uh, whiplash from all of this. If I can go back to the Ford deal, you might remember that they set a deadline midnight. They always like a midnight deadline. But within moments before that deadline, they said, wait a minute, Ford has put a better offer on the table. Everyone stand by. We're going to extend the deadline by 24 hours. And during those 24 hours, they got a deal. Clearly, uh, moments before this GM strike was going to start, GM did not come forward with something. So they said, all right, you're calling our bluff, everyone leave the plant, go on the strike. But then apparently within hours of that, GM came back with the deal they wanted. And so as you're right, 12-hour strike, not not very long at all. Is there a great impact in losing 12 hours of work or is this just a hiccup? Well, I'm going to call it a, a hiccup. Remember, it was a long holiday weekend. Things weren't really at full capacity. Um, it, although it begs the question, why didn't GM put something on the table? moments before rather than moments after the deadline. Uh, but I think from the union standpoint and from the worker standpoint, 
it still sounds pretty good. Now, we don't know exactly what's in the GM deal, but because Lana Payne says it's very similar to Ford, there's probably around a 15% wage hike over three years, 10% in the first year, 2% in the second year, 3% in the third year. The reinstatement of cost of living allowance uh, adjustments. So that could mean another, you know, six, seven, eight percent over the life of the contract as well. Uh, they're talking about pension enhancements, and then in 2025, putting everyone back into a defined benefit pension plan, not a defined contribution plan, which had been the norm for the last oh, nearly 10 years, um, and also getting people from uh, a probationary status to full-time status faster. There used to be eight steps. Now there'll be four. So I'm assuming the GM deal is very similar. And I think it's not, it's not bad at all. Now, the big question will be this weekend, will GM workers uh, ratify this deal? Remember when Ford had the ratification vote, the Ford workers, only 54% of them said yes. Now that was a majority. That was enough. But that's not a ringing endorsement. Usually these kinds of things get 70 80 percent endorsement so we're going to watch with interest and then of course that leaves Stellantis as the last to deal with they're not going to begin talking to them probably for another couple of weeks marvin ryder is a professor with the degrude school of business at mcmaster university we're talking about uh, unifor deals with gm and uh previous to that ford and and you mentioned Stellantis is on the way did they just say, okay? I mean, the other two automakers, uh, you know, gave them a check mark. Did they avoid any kind of work stoppage, or, or are they in a different boat than the other two automakers? Well, uh, can I put it to you this way? Uh, when Unifor picks the order for these template agreements, they tend to go from the one they think is going to be the easiest to the one they think is going to be the hardest. So Ford was the easiest, and they had success. GM in the middle, they've had success. Now Stellantis. Don't know why they think they're in third place here. Uh, what the challenge is. And let's also keep in mind the backdrop of all this is we're now into week four, I think it's day 25 of the United Auto Workers strike south of the border where everybody's feeling pain. They, they've decided to negotiate with all three car companies simultaneously. They used to do this template negotiating that Unifor does. I don't know why they've abandoned it. And so uh, I, I can see both sides again. A GM worker today might say, you know, maybe if we don't approve this, our neighbor south of the border will get something sweeter. We should hold out. On the other hand, I got a bird in the hand. Maybe I should sign up for it. And sending goes with Stellantis. Do you want to take a risk, see what happens down south of the border, or would you sign on to the same template? So I'm not really sure which way this is going to go, but it's always fascinating to watch. Yeah, what is going down in America? You mentioned that this is more than... Uh, a couple of weeks old. This is almost a month long now. What what, right. what is the holdup? What is the holdup? Well, the deals are different. So in the United States, the United Auto Workers are trying to get a four-year deal. In Canada, it was a three-year deal. In the United States, the four-year deal, over the four years, they'd like to see a wage increase of roughly 40%, 40%. The one in Canada, maybe 25% over three years. They want an immediate 20% increase in Canada, Workers get an immediate 10% increase. So the demands are bigger. Um, uh, the car companies are more worried about what that means for their uh, ability to operate profitably. And again, given the turmoil that's going to hit the industry over the next decade around electric vehicles, I know if I'm in the auto sector, I want to maintain as much flexibility as possible in this agreement. On the other hand, the workers say, well, we want some guarantees too. And it's just, it's just tough going. 
Oddly, I think when the dust settles on this, UAW might take a look north of the border and say, you know, that template negotiating, that might have been the better way to go. But I would note, Rick, not all workers are on strike south of the border. They've only really shut down three assembly plants. They've shut down some parts distribution centers, but those were parts destined for dealerships, not other automakers. <coughs> Excuse me, for coffee, Matthew. And this week, the big news was that Mack Trucks, have joined in on this, and now the UAW is striking against them. Well, really interesting negotiations both north and south of the border. Marvin, thanks for breaking it all down with us. Glad to be with you. Marvin Ryder, professor with the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University. Uh, Ford is a deal. GM has a tentative deal. Stellantis next up to the plate. And, of course, down south it is a much different story, as Marvin just explained. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. This is a discussion we'll continue to have on the show, and that is the conflict involving Israel and Hamas, where hundreds of people, including children, are dead as the conflict is escalating. What we've seen is way too many people wounded killed and basic principle of humanity which has not been respected and what we fear uh, is that what will come in the coming days and weeks that is an official at the international committee of the red cross how did this all start i'm not necessarily just talking about you know saturday's events and really how, how did this start decades ago hundreds of years ago in fact in how will it, if ever, come to an end? Michael Link is an associate professor in the Faculty of Law at Western University, also the special rapporteur on the situation of human rights in the Palestinian territories, and joins us now on GMH. Michael, good morning. How are you? Good, uh, good morning, Rick. Thank you for having me. If I can just correct, I'm a, now a professor emeritus, and I am the former UN uh, special rapporteur. My term ended in 2022. Appreciate the clarification. Give us a sense, more or less a history lesson of how how this region really was carved up um, decades ago and how it has kind of lended itself to this continual escalation. Sure. Um, it's a demanding task to do in a couple of minutes, but let me see if I can try. Um, roughly a hundred and hundred years ago, uh, the new British uh, conquering force, which had taken over um, from the Ottoman Empire in what was then Palestine, uh, declared its support for a Jewish homeland in Palestine. At the time that was done, uh, the population of Palestine was about 93% Palestinian Arab. Um, uh, fast forward to 1947, uh, when the United Nations decides to partition Palestine, even at that point in time, about uh, two-thirds of the population was Palestinian Arab, about a third of the population were uh, were Jews, uh, primarily who would, who would come either before or immediately after the Second World War, and of course, in the shadow of the Holocaust. Uh, in 1948, um, uh, Israel was born, um, and as, as a necessary legacy of that, over two-thirds of the Palestinian population were forced uh, into exile and not allowed to return. Uh, 1967, uh, the Six-Day War uh, occurred. Israel captured the Sinai Peninsula from Egypt, uh, the Golan Heights from uh, uh, from Syria, and the Gaza Strip, uh, East Jerusalem, and the West Bank. Um, fast forward to 1989, there is a sustained Palestinian uprising. Um, after uh, almost 20 years of, uh, of occupation and the demand 
that the Palestinians be given freedom. The assumption of the Israelis is that they would rule um, Israel. Uh, it would expand its borders from the Mediterranean Sea to the Jordan River. Um, fast forward to today, you now have a situation of a roughly 14 million people living between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea, and the population has reached parity. There are roughly 7 million Israeli Jews and 7 million Palestinian Arabs living there. Um, the Palestinian Arabs living uh, as citizens of Israel, uh, about 1.3, 1.4 million uh, Arab uh, Palestinians um, they are would have, if you like, second-class citizenship within Israel, and the five-plus million Palestinians who live under occupation, either in East Jerusalem, the West Bank, or Gaza, have no rights at all um, that are being recognized. They, they, they don't have uh, voting rights, and the rights they have as a protected people under occupation have been violated um, on a number of occasions, as documented by the United Nations. And so we have a situation where there's no path to freedom or a secure future for the Palestinians. And we see these continual either uh, revolts or or, um, uh, or large-scale violence, the, the largest scale, obviously, of what happened on Saturday. So uh, you're absolutely right in your question. It's difficult to understand what happened this weekend mm -hmm. without understanding the entire context of what's gone on before. You painted a great picture, and we don't have a lot of time. We've got about a couple minutes just to go through. Whether or not you think there is a path for peace, for peace some, some way, somehow. Yes. Look, I'm a lawyer, and I, in my work as in the six years that I was in my UN mandate was to emphasize the sturdy guardrails of international law as the path to peace there's not going to be, with, with an equal population of Palestinian Arabs and Israeli Jews, there's not going to be peace, not going to be common prosperity, unless they live in, in equality and through the rule of law. Uh, the subjugation that is a, at the very heart of an occupation, with Israel being the occupier and the Palestinians being the occupied people, has no stable future of, uh, of success. So they're going to have to invent either a viable two-state solution, which is not on the horizon, unfortunately, or eventually a one-state solution where all 14 million people wind up living under the same laws, with the same voting rights, with the same chances of peace, mm -hmm. prosperity, and uh, I guess a, a compassionate relationship. Unless that happens, and particularly with an ending of the Palestinian occupation, we're unfortunately going to see more and more of this in the future. Well, great insights from Mr. Michael Link, Professor Emeritus, Faculty of Law, Western University, the former Special Rapporteur on the Situation of Human Rights in the Palestinian Territories. Michael, appreciate the time this morning. Thanks for joining us. Thank you very much, Rick, for having me. Again, that is Michael Link from Western University. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. There is a new report out from Scotiabank that, surprisingly, to me at least, that 50% of business owners in Canada, half the business owners in this country who were surveyed, said that right now they're doing better than they were a couple of years ago. A couple of years ago, we were in the heart of the pandemic. Fourth Annual Path to Impact Report has a number of interesting tidbits of info. And here to share us uh, with uh, what they found is Joshua Jabas, the Vice President of Small Business at Scotiabank. Joshua, good morning. Thanks for joining us today. 
Good morning, Rick. Great to be with you. This, to me, is a bit of a head-scratcher because we have inflation that is high and, and, and was way higher now than it was during you know the, the peak of the pandemic. Interest rates, uh, of course, are higher because of that. We have fears of a recession, yet half the business owners you surveyed say they're, they're feeling better now. They're doing better now. How? Why? Yeah, so look, Rick, I think your comment is bang on. It is a head-scratcher because two years ago, we were facing different challenges. But those were fairly existential when you, we think about it. So I think today, small businesses have survived. They're the backbone of our economy. There's no recovery or middle class without small business. And many of them are actually in a position now to compete and win. At the same time, I would say it's cautious optimism is the main lesson of this report. Because the challenges you talk about, supply chain, you know, the hiring challenges, the demand challenges, they're real. And we hear it from our clients every day. Those challenges uh, are, are, I'm not sure if the the report dives into this, are they hampering business? Are they able to get through? Are they thinking of unique and alternate ways to make their business a success? So I think, you know, the report goes into some of these points and talks about what's keeping small business up at night. And there's no doubt that the cost of living, you know, more than half talked about inflationary pressures and and interest rates, which is a huge jump from last year, as those rates have jumped. So the two things we've noticed is that 90% of small businesses have asked for advice in the last couple of years, and they're also doing it by embracing technology. So people are starting to harness the power of technology, and small business is, is now kind of at the forefront there by doing virtual meetings, using the cloud, even AI, which people were afraid of, we're now seeing them embrace the opportunity in there. So I look at payments, Rick, as one area where small business today is competing with people all over the world because they're taking payments virtually through mobile. And at Scotiabank, you know, we've got some great partnerships and solutions for them. When it comes to, you mentioned artificial intelligence, and that is, it seems over the last, I don't know, six, eight months, a lot of people have looked at that thinking, my gosh, this is uh, the, the the end times are near. We're being taken over by the computers now. But there are some uh, positive gains that are being seen with the use of AI. Absolutely. It, it's not just college students getting help with their papers. Small business is actually using it to connect better with their customers, to identify opportunities for cost savings. And it's pretty incredible to see that more and more small businesses are embracing the opportunity of AI. And frankly, you know, they're finding ways to compete 24-7, 365 days a year by harnessing technology. We're talking about uh, Scotiabank's fourth annual Path to Impact report, and it finds, among other things, that 50% of business owners in this country surveyed say they're doing better now than they were a couple of years ago in the heart of the pandemic. Joshua Jabas is the vice president of small business at Scotiabank and with us now on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. What are some of the more common challenges that small businesses will face? And if we're, if someone were to start a small business now, do they face the same challenges as those who have have a business that has already been successful for a number of years? So look, startups are always a challenge and bootstrapping a business today, some would argue is um, creates different challenges than a generation ago. The speed to getting to market has definitely accelerated. But I think that when I 
look at the challenges that we hear about, it's really around access to finance and credit, advice, the use of digital tools. And at the end of the day, what we see is the small businesses that have strong relationships with advisors who get advice do better. So, you know, at Scotiabank, we have uh, amazing tools online with Advice Plus and our small business solutions builder that a advisor in a branch or on the phone or in a virtual meeting can help an entrepreneur build out their business. We're really excited about what entrepreneurs are going to be able to do in the coming years uh, with technology. But I think to your question, new and old, older small businesses all need great advice and access to financing. There's certainly some uh, challenges ahead for uh, many small businesses, but as we found out with this uh, report, a lot of opportunities out there as well. Joshua, thank you for the time today. Uh, best of luck with the next report next year. Thank you, Rick. Joshua Jabez is the VP of Small Business at Scotiabank and their fourth annual Path to Impact report. You can uh, Google it to find out uh, lots more information. Really interesting uh, tidbits of info in there. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. There is a, uh, a new Leger poll out that shows three out of four Ontarians want Premier Doug Ford to extend the gas tax cut. And this is This is really interesting because (laughs) if I was surveyed and a bunch of my friends were surveyed, all of us would say, uh, yeah, please uh, make that make that uh, gas tax cut extendable forever and ever. And so I'm really intrigued about the 25 percent that said, "Nah, I want to pay a lot more taxes. Come on. Bring it to me. Jay Goldberg is the Ontario and Interim Atlantic Director with the Canadian Taxpayers Federation and joins us on Good Morning Hamilton. Jay, good morning. How are you? Uh, great to be with you. Doing very well. So w- where are we with this gas tax cut? When is it expected to expire? So the gas tax cut came into place in July of 2022. It was meant to be a temporary cut. Uh, it was uh, to last six months. And then last November, the Ford government extended it for another year. So it will expire at the end of this year. So your New Year's gift, if you will, <laughs> will be higher gas taxes at the pump if the Premier doesn't act. Uh, and as you said, there was a Leger poll that came out, 75% of Ontarians want to see that tax cut extended. You'd have a hard time finding, uh, you know, enough uh, people in Ontario to support the same sports team, let alone to support a gas tax extension. Uh, and then I should also add that only 12% said no, uh, 13% said they weren't sure. Hmm. So only about one out of every 10 people is against this gas tax cut extension. Which is puzzling. I mean, who wants to pay more taxes? Well, I suppose it could be somebody who doesn't drive. Um, But, you know, frankly, uh, 75% is overwhelming. We've got very strong support. It's strong support in every region, strong support in every age group. Uh, This is meaningful relief. It's given relief if you drive if your family has a minivan and a sedan and you fill them both up once a week, over the first 12 months, you save $436 uh, at the pump. And by now, because it's been in place for well over a year, that family with the two cars has saved $500. So <laughs> this is real money. It pays for two weeks of groceries for a family of four. And so we really want to see Doug Ford extend this. Uh, you know, they've given indications that they might do that. But we wanted to show that this is overwhelming support for him to move forward on this. Do you think it's better than a 50-50 chance that it will be extended past January 1st? 
I think there's a good chance because, frankly, we're in a time where affordability is a very clear issue for most Ontarians. Uh, we've got more than half of Ontarians that say they're living paycheck to paycheck. Uh, the fiscal situation is better. It looks like we could potentially even run a surplus next year. And so I do think there's a good chance of this, but Ontarians really need to push the Ford government to do this because governments don't just cut taxes and have less revenue uh, in their in their in their pot of money uh, without taxpayers really fighting for it and so we've got to push the government to do this this has been a nice offset considering we are paying more through the federal carbon tax that's exactly right so the federal carbon tax has been going up by 2.2 cents per liter for the last several years and so since the tax cuts been in place it has shielded shielded Ontarians from about 4.4 cents per litre in increases in the federal carbon tax. So we are still, um, you know, keeping more money in our pockets because of what the Ford government has done here. You're saving 6.4 cents per litre. That's still about two cents more than what we faced in carbon tax increases over the past two years. But if they let this lapse, uh, January 1st, your gas taxes go up by 6.4 cents per litre, and then the federal government will come in in April and increase it by another 2.2 cents per litre. So you're looking at a very significant gas tax hike if the province doesn't act. Well, we're talking with Jay Goldberg. Jay is the Ontario and Interim Atlantic Director with the Canadian Taxpayers Federation and a recent Leger poll that shows three out of four Ontarians want the Premier to extend the gas tax cut, which is expected or set to expire on January the 1st of 2024. What is this tax revenue used for? Is it to repair roads? Is it anything transportation related? So the government uses this money for essentially anything that they want. Uh, It goes into general revenue. The government can use it uh, for general revenue. They can use it uh, to pay for projects. They can use it for infrastructure, fixing roads. Um, But this has been a very significant source of savings for Ontarians. In the first year of the tax cut alone, Ontario taxpayers saved a billion dollars. And so we've got a government, though, that um, just in the last six months has promised to give $10 billion of taxpayer cash to Volkswagen and Stellantis. You add those two companies together, they had $99 billion worth of profits last year. And our Ontario government is giving $10 billion of our cash to these businesses. So if we really want to talk about being able to invest in infrastructure, being able to invest in keeping our roads in good shape, uh, we should keep this gas tax cut, cancel the handouts to these corporations, and fund any kind of road fixing, highway fixing, transportation that needs to be funded in this province. Jay, I appreciate you waking up with us this morning on GMH. Enjoy the rest of your day. Thanks. Same with you. That is Jay Goldberg, the Ontario and Interim Atlantic Director with the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, again pointing to a Leger poll that shows that 75% of Ontarians want the Premier to extend the gas tax cut. It is set to expire January 1st. And as you heard from Jay, it has saved the average two-car family $500 since it was introduced in July of 2022. That's over a billion dollars overall for taxpayers in this province. And there's some demographic stats that are interesting as well. Ontarians aged 55 plus are more likely to say yes, extend this tax, than those aged 18 to 34, which is interesting. And also, those living in rural areas are more likely to agree that the tax relief should continue compared to those living in urban areas, 83% to 72%, which shows me, I think those in rural areas 
have to drive further to get to where they need to get to in, in some cases and don't want to pay as much gas tax. That is for sure. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.